You're listening to a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where we explore how to integrate timeless principles and practices into everyday life. On today's episode, my guest is Mark Van Buren, the author of Life is Meditation and A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness. Mark is a seasoned yoga and meditation instructor and runs workshops and retreats in the tri-state area. I hope you enjoy this conversation with the wise and gracious Mark Van Buren. Hey Mark, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Hello, I'm really glad to be here today. I'm excited. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm, I appreciate you taking the time. I enjoyed the the book, Your Life is Meditation. You do two things that I love. It's written with short chapters and it's really, really practical. So, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. How would you describe the book to someone not familiar with it? Oh, that's an interesting question. You know, I would say that it's it's a way to really bring practice to everyday life. You know, and for me, this is a topic that is important to me because for so long, I had such a a big gap between daily life and practice. You know, it was like I had this really special practice with retreats and my daily meditation. And then I had like the messiness of everyday life, which, you know, was hard. And, you know, I had feelings I didn't like, situations I didn't want to be in just things like that. And and they just never seemed to come together. It was always these two separate things. And it's like, I couldn't get on enough retreats. I couldn't do enough meditation to get some whatever that I thought I was going to get enlightenment or, you know, somehow transcend my humanity. And it just kept seeming like life kept getting in the way of my spiritual practice. And I remember specifically being on a 10-day retreat and just sitting there in the middle of the week sometime and just like, you know what, maybe this is just it. Like maybe maybe this is it. And maybe there isn't this big special experience. And even if there is, it's going to come, it's going to go. Maybe it's just how do I relate to this? And by this, I mean my life in this moment, which really is that that's all life is, is this moment, you know, like, and I, I teach this all the time. This is it, these three words. And I, and it doesn't sound very deep. It doesn't sound very profound, but when you really get it, like, here, like in the heart, experientially, when you understand there's no other time, there's no other body, there's no other mind, there's no other relationships, there's no other work situation besides the one that you're in right now. And like what's what's happened is, is over, you know, and tomorrow, who knows, but like, this is it, it can really transform your life. And it's, it's really empowering too, because once you really understand, like, there's no other time, then it's like, well, I have to relate to this. And it's how do I relate to it is really the practice. How do I do this? How do I fully engage with my life? How do I meet it skillfully and in a wholesome way that's in line with my values and and with what's important to me? I love it. You really bring a, a lot of everydayness, I guess, if you will, to it that I, I really resonate with as we discussed before I hit record with young kids and and you have young kids and the everyday life and the integration of our particular practices. So, I really enjoyed it. And one of the things you touched on, which is kind of my first question is a theme 
this is it. I love that theme of running throughout the book. But before we get too much in the book, this is In Search of Wisdom. And I, I'd love to maybe touch on and, and go a number of years back if we could. What initially started this search or practice so many years ago, Mark? Looking back, I can't think of anything big. I know that I at one point I was in high school and I learned meditation and I was pretty much the kid making noises, you know, like poking my friends. I didn't take it seriously at all. But I remember a few years after that, like I remembered that. It was like that seed was planted there and I remembered. And if I look back, there's some strange things. Like I remember one of my friends came back from a Chinese restaurant after getting Chinese food with this little box. And when you turned it on, it went something like, ah, 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 and it had this whole like, and I thought it was like the greatest thing ever. So I, I quickly ran after school to this particular restaurant and I picked it up and I grabbed it and it was all Chinese written on it. And I didn't know what it said. But I just thought it was like so great. And, and I kind of thought it was funny a little bit too, just, and like it became this thing, like on fishing trips, me and my uncle would do that chant and play it. We thought that would get us fish somehow. And it wasn't until years later when I was doing a work study program at the Chan Center in Pine Bush, New York, the Dharma Drum Retreat Center, where we went to visit the Chan Center in, I don't know if it's Brooklyn or Queens. But as I walked in, I heard that exact chant and I had been practicing in the Chan tradition for quite some time and I never heard it at, at least at that retreat center. But really it was the chant for Guan Yin, Namo Guan Shi Yin Pusa. You know, it's basically saying like the great Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara or Guan Yin. Looking back, I find that to be quite funny how I had a Chan Buddhist thing in my hand that I used to play and, and, and sing and stuff. And it happened to be the tradition that I would later be taking very seriously. And that would change the course of my life. No real like accident or illness. Usually, you know, think of like the Buddha, right? And, and when he was on his journey, he saw the four heavenly messengers, right? Aging, sickness, and death, plus the monk. I didn't have anything cool like that or anything, you know, traumatic or big, but you know, maybe if I'm honest with myself, maybe I was on a path that was just empty, you know, and I, I know I struggled a lot with emptiness and, you know, I'd fallen away from the church. I really didn't think, you know, that was helpful at all. And maybe I was searching for, maybe I was in search of wisdom <laughs> <laughs> to drop the name right there. How would you describe that emptiness that you mentioned? Just like... I don't know, this gaping hole in my heart that nothing could fill. And most of my life was trying to fill it with excitement. You know, it was like changing jobs, changing girlfriends, changing, you know, majors in school. Like I had to have novelty and, and newness because at least that excitement temporarily kept me from feeling that empty feeling, you know, and then I tried to get rid of it, which was the the other extreme. Like I tried to go to therapy. I used spiritual practice. I used meditation, like hoping that I, it would go away and I'd be filled with meaning. And, you know, I went to school for religion at Montclair to try to find the meaning. And I remember being specifically in, which class was it? Not Kierkegaard, maybe T.S. Eliot. Yeah, I think it was T.S. Eliot course. And the idea, the concept that we create our own meaning really bothered me. And I didn't like that. I wanted there to be an inherent meaning that I could find and discover and be fulfilled. 
you know, so I really, I couldn't figure out how to get rid of it. I couldn't cover it up for too long. I eventually kind of came to this conclusion that this feeling's going to be here and I'm going to be here. And much like Milarepa in the Cave of Demons, I'm not sure if you ever heard that story before, but I said, well, if you're going to be here, you know, I guess you can stay, you know, and I started to sit with it. I started to go on walks with it. I started to just allow it to be there. And over time, it kind of just dissipated on its own. And I really don't struggle with the meaninglessness or the emptiness anymore. And in fact, meditation has given me meaning. And especially this book, Your Life is Meditation, when you realize your spiritual path is not blocked by your life and the obstacles in your life, but is actually your life and the obstacles in your life themselves, things shift and everything has meaning. How I meet suffering has meaning. How I meet joy has meaning. How I meet other people in my life, the difficult people, the people I love. It's just working with your body and your mind and your life moment by moment in a skillful and wholesome way. And I I had such fantasy ideas about this practice. And when you read the story of the Buddha, or if you read any religious stories, or any of the kind of hero's journey stories or myths, you get this almost like it's going to be this epic thing. And I remember reading a book, After the Ecstasy, The Laundry by Jack Kornfield, and it was such a breath of fresh air because it's like there is no spiritual retirement. And what I was really looking for was a spiritual bypass, something that I like. I could just repeat a mantra and go around my pain and go around the difficulty of being human. And there's nothing, there's nothing that's going to save us from our humanity. It can seem like a big disappointment at first, but then it's really rewarding and a breath of fresh air. And part of the thing that I really try to teach now is just normalizing suffering because it's so taboo, you know, and it's so not talked about. And and if you're going through something, it's almost like looked down upon, you're failing, you're not successful, yada, yada, yada. Like if you're not happy all the time, something's wrong with you. And it's just, it's BS. You're not happy all the time. And that's just part of being human. And sometimes you're anxious, sometimes you're sad, sometimes you're depressed, sometimes you're angry. These are all natural, normal things. And it's not about getting rid of our humanity or somehow curing it, but learning to open up to it, to love it anyway, to work with it, and to try to live as wisely and as compassionately as possible. It's such an important point. And I would, I'd love to follow that here for the first part of the conversation of you write, making peace with life as it actually is. We early on discussed this concept of of this is it. How do we transition from this, how it ought to be and, and kind of get to that accepting it as it is? Well, I mean, it's as simple as just arriving fully to this moment, right? You just let go and this is it. I mean, those three words, you can just write it down. You can repeat it. When you see you're getting caught in something, just say, this is it. You know, but, you know, there are practical methods on top of it. It it's, sounds very simple, and it is, but it's not necessarily easy because we're extremely attached to our view of what life should be or our bubble. I've been calling it lately me world. You know, we're very caught up in me world, and we have this bubble, and we want life to fit inside this bubble. And we try so hard to manipulate life to fit in the bubble instead of just either one, expanding our bubble, or two, just popping it all together and just saying, ah, this is it. 
you know, and 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 there is a path to that because there there you might have to you might have to grieve, you know, like a little bit when you really come to that place of okay, this is it. I need to grieve the life that I wish I had, you know, or that I used to have, and that's a, a normal part of it. There is a path from how I think my life should be to here it is, but at the same time. It's also right here. Here it is. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? It does. And it, it definitely connects with, uh, on this podcast, we sometimes have guests with philosophy and, and a lot of different topics, but there's this concept of a, a more fati that I, I think Nietzsche said of this love of fate, not merely accepting what is, but loving it, kind of the going on next step. Right. And even just appreciating your life as it is, because that's all you have. Like, and I, I will keep pushing this point and it might sink in and it might not, but this is all you got. Like there's, there is nothing else. And you have this moment in time where you have a body and a mind and hopefully one that's functioning fairly well that you can see and hear and, and feel and, and interact with people. And we forget this bigger picture that, that somehow you know, we've been thrown into this planet, right? And somehow here we are on this floating rock in the middle of infinite empty space. We're flying around a big fireball. There's this big like hole that things get sucked into that is somewhere kind of in our galaxy. And we're all kind of spinning around that. And, you know, here we are talking about, I don't know, meditation, like on a computer, like with microphones. And like, I think we're so used to our world of concepts. I need to go to work. I need to make money. I have this person in my life, my, my cell phone, my house, my car. Like we have this world where we have labels and, and, and it makes us feel like we know where we are and what's happening. But when you really like pause and and ponder and contemplate, we realize that we don't know anything at all. You know, and, and that can be quite frightening for a lot of people. So they'd rather live in that bubble, you know, of their ideas and, and their beliefs and their sense of self, rather than kind of let go into the mystery that is already here. I really like this idea of what you said. It's simple, but not easy. One of the things, even if we were able to come to an acceptance of, of this is it, Sometimes we'll have this tendency, it seems like, and I've been really fascinated with this living in uncertainty. How do we avoid looking into this crystal ball and predicting the future, kind of avoiding the pull of the future at the same time? Well, I think we just go directly to the fear itself that's driving it. And that's always the instruction with our suffering is to go to the felt sense of it, go to the reality of it. You know, so many people experience like, let's say, anxiety or fear, and they've never actually felt it. What's crazy is that our neurotic patterns of mind are trying to get us away from the fear, but at the same time are driven by the fear itself, are created by the fear itself. So it's like, it's like a cycle that, that, that can't work because fear is creating the neurotic pattern that's trying to get away from itself. Does that make sense? Like, for example, like your question, 
like looking into the unknown and trying to predict what's going to happen. We're trying to do that because we're afraid and we don't want to feel that sense of groundlessness and fear. So we're looking ahead and trying to plan every possible thing that can go wrong so that we don't feel that fear. But the paradox is that the fear is driving that. You know, so and the fear is that neurotic pattern. So it's kind of, it's just this kind of big mess. So the instruction is start to make friends with the fear, because if you can start learning to sit with the fear and hold those sensations with some kind of warmth or compassion and ease, you learn that it's just a contraction. You know, it's just an unpleasant energy. I don't really like using that word. It sounds so new agey, but it's the best word I got. An unpleasant energy that is present in the body for a period of time. It can only get so intense before it has to change or go away. I mean, this is just the nature of things, impermanence. Anything that arises ceases. So if we can learn to to work directly with the energies that drive these neurotic patterns or ways of thinking or acting then we'll find it'll lessen the neurotic patterns because we're getting comfortable with the thing that the patterns are trying to pull us away from and prevent us from feeling. How does that connect with the chapter coming home to ourselves? You write, we're we're not coming home to feel good necessarily. Yeah, I mean, uh, we're just coming home, meaning coming back to reality, coming back to our direct experience with life. And So often we're so alienated, especially if you've experienced trauma growing up or just maybe self-hatred with the body due to our, you know, societal standards and what's being promoted and things like that. It's just a relief to just come home, you know, and it's not necessarily coming home to the body, but coming home to that spacious loving awareness, which is holding the experience of the body and the mind and, and this life coming home to that and resting there. There's another chapter I really liked that you, you kind of touched on a, a bit there of the broken jukebox of these few records that we have on repeat, if you will. Could you speak to that? So many of us are just caught in our stories about ourselves and some common ones are not good enough. I'm unlovable. Life isn't safe. I'm the victim you know, based on the experiences of our lives and how as children we dealt with those experiences, we kind of create ideas and identities, uh, ideas about the world and ourselves and, and these identities that maybe at some point kind of kept us safe. But as we grow older, they kind of are outdated and a lot of times cause us to suffer unnecessarily and, and maybe cause other people to suffer as well. So, you know, once you start paying attention to your mind, you'll start to see there's probably a theme to almost every thought. And it might be, you know, the top five, you know, or the top three themes of your life. But, you know, your daydreams will reenact them. Your worries will bring them up and out. It's first about learning the songs that keep playing in your mind and seeing, well, what are my patterns What are my habitual ways of reacting to life? What is my habitual way of reacting to pain or suffering or difficulty? What is my habitual way of reacting to my parents or my significant other, my children, my friends? And it's really seeing all that first, which can be very difficult because we're all kind of neurotic sometimes and we all have our things that we do that is not wholesome or skillful. So 
this is where you really need some compassion as well to really be able to say, okay, this is where I am. It's a little kooky sometimes. I cause some harm sometimes, but this is like, this is the whole overall picture of, of where I am in this moment. And this is what I'm working with. And it is workable, right? Neuroscience now is proving that, and I'm no neuroscientist, so don't quote me on this, but that we can create new neural pathways, right? We have this thing, neuroplasticity. So we have the ability to change our habitual patterns that cause us to suffer unnecessarily. If we look at our suffering in our life, and I'm not talking about pain, right? If you twist your ankle, that's not what I'm talking about. If you get a root canal, that's not what I'm talking about. If you feel grief from a loss. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's like this extra stuff that we bring, the, the habitual reactivity of the mind. That is what I'm talking about. And most of our suffering, if not all, is just very unskillful, habitual, unconscious reactions in the mind. Yeah, no, I think it's really helpful. Underneath that, where does the idea of nothing being good or bad, it seems like that needs to run in the in the background or is an important point. How do you see that? Right. Well, I think we have a lot of ideas and especially in our modern society, like I said, we're supposed to like be young and happy permanently somehow. And it's like, we think if we eat enough kale and put this expensive cream on our face and all this exercise and stuff, we're going to be the one case that like doesn't age or something. And if we just get the right job, the right partner, the right amount of money, the right vacations. If we just get our life to be in this particular way that we're somehow going to be happy forever and never have any problems, <laughs> you know? So part of it is just seeing through that nonsense and just realizing that life's going to be messy and difficult. There may be times where it's not, but more often than not, we're going to experience difficulty and some kind of frustrations and confusion. And, you know, so it's like just coming to terms with what's true. Yeah, that's what I really like to teach is just these sobering truths about our lives. Like aging is normal. Illness is part of it. We're all going to die. We're all going to be separated from the people and things we love. And we don't live that way. We live in this fantasy world. And even the way we deal with our deceased relatives, like we dress them up, we put makeup on, we want them to look alive. Like we're, we're so afraid to really just see death for what it is. And, you know, it's not like that everywhere, but it's really just waking up to how things are and then living from that place. And it can be very difficult. I'm not going to lie. There was a long period of time where I was just like, when am I not going to be suffering anymore? And I remember asking at like a workshop, the teacher, I was just like, I've been doing all this work. When am I going to be happy all the time, basically, <laughs> you know, and it didn't come. But I add what Tara Brock used this saying one time, a profound okayness. And I think that's been an ever deepening thing for me, a profound okayness with how life actually is. And it's allowed me to not fight so much and struggle with how things are and just learn to be with it. Like right now I have an aunt who's in hospice and probably has, could be a couple days. It could be any day now, a few weeks, but I can just be with that. 
you know, and, and I'm not sitting there. She was such a great person. Why is this happening to her? Well, because I understand reality that illness happens to anybody. It doesn't matter if you're really nice and if you're really wise or if you've done great things or bad things, you could still get cancer. You can still get a disease. You're still going to get old. And at some point you will still die. So I'm not like fighting it. I can just be with it. And when my feelings arise, in relationship to that situation, I know how to be with those as well. And I know how to hold that as well. And I, and it's not like I shouldn't be sad. Of course I should be sad. This is the loss of a life of somebody that you care about, you know? Yeah. So I don't know. Again, I go, I get so excited about this stuff that I kind of go on rants. And what was the original question? I want to make sure I actually answer it. (laughs) I love it. I'm not sure if I recall the the exact question when we started, <laughs> but but you touched on a point that I'd love to hear a bit more on happiness. And you write in the chapter of this, the waving cross guard, happiness may not be as you really kind of understand it and it, it transitioning to this appreciation and joy for actual life. Could you speak to that example a little bit? I think that's a good one of just integration of life. Right. So I think there's going to be like a twofold here. One is just understanding happiness. And again, what most of us feel happiness is, is a certain way of feeling, a certain pleasant feeling, right? That arises when things in your life are going the way that you want them to go, right? That's the average person's happiness. I'm happy today. Why? Because I woke up, my back doesn't hurt. I just got this new job that pays me this amount of money. I just bought a new car. I got the new iPhone. I, you know, it's like things are okay right now. So I can be happy, right? So we have to let that be the ancient happiness, <laughs> you know, the old school happiness. And we need to invite a new type of happiness, which again, could be called profound okayness, could be called joy, contentment. People use words differently. So you have to really define your your terms here. I could just say actual happiness, like my first book, The Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness. I feel like it's the mind of equanimity, what I call the mind of now this, right? So I can wake up and I can feel sad and it's just, ah, now this, you know? And it shouldn't be this way. I'm wrong for feeling this way. I'm failing because I'm not happy that I'm somehow wrong for being upset. It's no, it's just sometimes this happens. Like this is what it means to be a human being. And there's a quote and I always forget who it's by, but it's nothing human is alien to me. And that's what we're trying. That's like the direction of our practice that whatever life presents us, we can hold it. That we have a spacious mind and a compassionate heart that is big enough to hold anything, whether it's extremely painful or extremely joyful or anything in between. So that's the happiness part. But happiness can also, you know, be working skillfully and engaging fully in the actual life you have. So, you know, this one janitor who became a crossing guard, like that can be a pretty mundane job. And and you'd think, well, how can I be happy? I'm not saving lives. I'm not doing these great things in the world. There's so much problems and I'm just a crossing guard. Well, every day this guy, (laughs) he sits there and he waves and he points at people and he says, how you doing? And like, have a good day. And like, he's like screaming like a maniac. I remember the first time I saw him, I'm like, what the heck? And I was like, that's my old janitor. Like, is he all right? But then like day after day, you're driving by and it was such a special thing. And everybody honks and looks and smiles. And he made just a mundane 
thing, like his, his life, like uh, the, as a crossing guard, he made it special for everybody. And he spread joy and happiness every day just by engaging fully in his life and, and, and being brave enough to do something different and to try to make other people happy. And, you know, we can be a anything, a graphic designer that sits at a desk and, and we can bring something special to that and to our workplace. And we don't have to save lives to have that joy. You know, we can just express our joy anywhere. We can just bring everybody donuts every Friday or, you know, like there's so many ways that you can make your job or your life, no matter how mundane, you can make it special. And, and really the way to deep joy is to make other people happy and to ease other people's suffering however you can, whether that's calling people, calling someone who's lonely, in my case, visiting someone in hospice and just hanging out and bringing a smile to someone's face. I mean, if you want a source of unlimited joy, help others and make that your lifelong practice. So that's the crossing guard. I love that story. I can almost picture him in my head. To me, it seems like that's wisdom. I mean, rubber to the road, just completely joyful in his life and, and now spreading that all over. Yeah. And I don't think it's nothing special. And I think that is something that we have to get over because when people first get into spiritual practice, it's like, it's like there's this mountain and I'm going to climb this mountain. And, and I don't want to diminish that because I'll tell you what, in my confusion of what spiritual practice was, I really practiced so hard and I had so much discipline and dedication in thinking that I was going to get rid of something or attain something. So I don't want to diminish that drive because I think that was a really important part of my practice. And if I didn't have that, I wouldn't have went on dozens of these silent retreats. I wouldn't have sat for hours and hours and hours in meditation or doing Qigong or whatever I was doing. But it also, you know, it was like all that effort also led me to the realization that there really isn't anything special to be found except the ordinary specialness of your life that you're just practicing with your life. And I'm not diminishing retreats at all. I think they're extremely important. Your daily practice, extremely important. But it, you know, it, it's also just being with your kids and going to work and driving your car and eating food. And it, it's just, it's just this. I mean, there's nothing else beyond this. There's just this. And, you know, you get meaning from relating fully and wholeheartedly to just this. At least I do. I don't know. <laughs> when it comes to our tendency to attain and, and strive that you've just touched on, if you could go back and give yourself a piece of advice, maybe at the beginning of this journey, would you provide anything? Or if so, what might that be? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I would have listened to me, but <laughs> I think I would have told myself, like, especially with practice and retreats, like, stop trying so hard to get something and just be there, you know, and, and the process happens all on its own in that way. Like, it's almost like, I think I have a chapter in my book, or at least I say an analogy like this about just watering. I don't know if it's a tree or a plant, I can't remember. Just think of like even just planting new grass seed because that's something that I've been doing this past you know month. But it, you know, it's like you don't determine how fast the grass grows 
and if it'll grow at all. But what you can do is show up every day and water those seeds, make sure they're getting enough sun, not too much sun, not too much shade, you know, keeping the animals away, just nourishing the seed, you know, over and over again, and things will happen in their own time. And, you know, I feel like, you know, a little disappointed because I feel like now I'm at the point where I, where I know how to be on a retreat, what I would say properly or more wisely, but now I don't have the time to go on the retreats because I have, you know, my three kids that are, you know, six, four, and two and full-time job and a bunch of part-time jobs. And, but, you know, to be able to tell myself, like, just focus on the method and focus on just being there for every breath, every step, hold everything and, you know, just relax into that and see what happens, you know? That's really helpful. You, you mentioned in the book about the mainstream nature of, of meditation today. What would you say might be some common myths around med meditation? That it's going to make you feel good all the time, that you're somehow going to be this all-loving, all-compassionate guru at some point, and you'll never get mad or never feel afraid anymore, that you have to stop your mind. This is a big one that so many people say, ah, it's not for me. I tried it one time and I couldn't stop my mind. Well, one, you tried it one time, like try 10 years and then tell me if you still don't like it. But two, like your mind's an organ. We think our mind is us and that we're in control of it. And it's really confusing. And we think meditation's supposed to be going to this happy place where there's no thoughts. That's not it. I mean, you're not mad that your heart's beating. You're not mad that your stomach's digesting food, but you're somehow mad that your mind keeps thinking when you sit down with it, which doesn't make sense. Again, it was created to think like that is what it does. So it's not about getting rid of thoughts. It's just changing your relationship to your thoughts. And, and in doing that, it does get quieter sometimes. And there are moments of no thought. And I've had moments of no thought. And I'll tell you what, it's not that great. It's just you sitting there with no thoughts. It's the same thing, except it's just a little less noisy in your head. So there's not anything too special about it. For me, I just like to sit with everything. I just like to be like what, what T.S. Eliot would say, you know, the still point of the turning world, you know, because that for me, it's all about practicality for me. You know, I'm not going to be single pointed in my everyday life, like in the messiness, the quickness of everyday life. So to me, trying to block out the world and focus on one point and just push everything away doesn't make sense because it's not practical. For me, it, the more like zazen or just sitting or whatever you want to call it, the Zen approach of just kind of just sitting right there in the middle of it and just noticing and being aware. This is happening. Ah, busy mind. Good to see you. Ah, achy, achy knee. It's good to, you know, sit with you again today. Uh, ah, anxiety. Welcome. Because if you can maintain balance and ease and equanimity, no matter what, then when you go out into your life, it doesn't matter if there's noises. It doesn't matter if your mind is screaming at you. It doesn't matter if your body hurts or you're ill. You've already practiced and you've already realized that your practice can hold anything so that you're out in the world and then you can respond rather than react from a place of ease and clarity and compassion and wisdom because that's what you've been cultivating. And it's so sad to see like if somebody's just trying to feel a certain way or just 
per, just only do stress reduction. It's like, that's nice and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you just do 10 minutes a day of trying to feel good and zonk out, that's good for 10 minutes. But then when your friend dies or when you get diagnosed with cancer or you lose your job or you're in the middle of a pandemic, how does those 10 minutes that you've been putting in every day make sense with what's going on? How is that helping you with the rest of your life? So for me, it's always bridging that gap of, you know, you know, I want to make sure that what I'm practicing on the cushion makes sense in my life. Otherwise, why am I doing it? And that really comes through in the book, this practical nature and in, in integration. I really, really enjoyed it. The time has flown by. I've got a few more questions here, if I could. In the, the, the final chapter, there's no way to peace. Peace is the way. Why is this important to, to understand? And we may have touched a bit on it throughout the conversation. Right. So I always like to like put things out there that dig people deeply, you know, and, and really kind of poke at their, their solid beliefs about things. So I love that saying because, you know, we think of peace as something you attain normally. And I would say peace is the practice of relating peacefully two things in your life, you know? So on one level, it can, sure, there is this thing called peaceful, you know, peace or peaceful feelings that come and go, but they come and go, right? So what's something that doesn't come and go? Well, my choice and my practice and my discipline and my commitment to meeting everything in my life peacefully, right? Or kindly or wisely, right? So it's more of you know, it's like rather than focusing on how do I feel a certain way, it's how do I relate to this from a, from a place of clarity, from a place of spaciousness and, and warmth. It's more practice focus, right, rather than attainment focus. And I think that is something that as Westerners we really need to learn is how do we shift from, you know, like, Okay, so I'm going to do meditation. What do I get in exchange for my meditation? And we think of it instead of that attainment and getting stuff, how do I relate differently to what's already here? And, you know, I love telling people when they say, well, what am I going to get? I say nothing. You're not getting anything. Because, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I follow up after that, but it's just fun to see people like, what? Like, but really, the ego, it's not getting anything out of it, you know? The ego, we're letting go of that. We're letting go of the, I need to get something, right? Because that's that's craving, that's, that's ego, that's self-centered thinking, like me, 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 me. And if we just let go of what's in it for me, then we find out what's in it for me, you know? Like it's, it's very paradoxical once you start going deep into this stuff. Like how do I get something from meditation? Well, give up wanting something. And then you get something, you know, it's not, and I don't want to say there isn't fruits to the practice. Like there is, and, and you do get them and I am more happier and my mind is quieter and I can work with difficult emotions much easier than 13 years ago or whenever I started. My blood pressure is probably lower and my heart rate's slower and my di digestion's better. I mean, there's all these great benefits to practice, but if you focus solely on getting benefits, then you don't really practice because you're too caught up in some future time where you're going to get something that you missed the whole point, which is right here, which is why peace is the way 
is, is so important because how I'm relating to this moment, not to the moment when I'm more compassionate or happier or whatever, to this moment where I'm still a mess, where I still have all these issues and suffering. That's the practice. And peace is the way. You know, you're not going to get peace from it. And if you're hoping for some permanent happy feeling, you're going to be disappointed because like all things in this world, they come, they go. But if you take on the practice of how do I meet this differently, then there's a joy, you know, that arises from that. And it's not a conditioned joy. It's not based on feeling a certain way. It's not based on life being a certain way. It's based on having a practice that helps me relate differently to this, cultivate compassion and wisdom with this, you know, like using my life to cultivate wholesome and skillful habits of mind and qualities. I love that. It definitely connects for me with that broken jukebox of not just replaying those playlists about ourselves, but does it seem like we have some playlists about what happiness is, what peace is, playlists of what practice is that may need to be changed or how do you think about that? 100%. And and, and really, the sooner you can learn to let go of these things, the better because there's such hindrances in, I don't dare I say progress in the practice, but they're just hindrances. And, you know, it's like, if you can't find ease and joy right now, the only place where you can be, well, where are you expecting to find it? And why can't you have joy when there's difficulty in your life? You know, and and that doesn't mean like a fake happy smile, (laughs) you know, like, I have cancer. (laughs) Like, this is great. Like, no, that's just what I call toxic positivity, which is a whole nother topic for maybe another day. But, but it's just the joy of, okay, like this is what life is presenting me. And now I have a practice and, you know, I can breathe in the suffering of all people experiencing cancer or anxiety or depression, and I can send them relief. You know, there's, there's tools, there's practices, there's ways of relating differently that reduce the amount of suffering in your life. And that's really the essence of it. How can I relate to my life so that I cause the least amount of harm to myself and other people? And so that I'm of most use in the world so that I can be the most helpful and and ease the most suffering in other people and, and make a difference right in this life. That's great. Of all the chapters in the book, which do you think you need the most reminding of? Is there any sort of favorite chapter if you could come back to one that you'd get a reminder of? I mean, I always come back to the one chapter where I'm in the back of a police car. I mean, that's one of my favorite chapters, how I ended up in the backseat of a police car on a retreat. And it's a long story, so I'm not going to go too into it. But basically, the the premise of the story is to have a light heart, to be lighthearted, you know, be absolutely dedicated and disciplined, but with a lightheartedness. You're not making it a joke, and you're taking it very seriously, but with a sense of humor and yeah, lightheartedness, that's the best way I can put it because you get too serious about it and you get all these ideas about it and it becomes too rigid and there's no joy in that. There was no joy when I was trying to work so hard and attain some deep experience and it was just, I was beating myself up. And I even remember one retreat lying on the ground. I didn't want to lay in the bed. I was trying to like malnourish my ego. 
and and my sense of self and I wouldn't allow myself to eat anything that tasted good. I slept on just a towel on the floor without a pillow and I realized quickly that that was really stupid and silly to do all of this with a very lighthearted, humorous, warm, compassionate approach because you know we tend to use these practices to hate ourselves even more. You know, especially once we start paying attention and we see our difficulties, we see where we keep getting stuck. We bring this self-hatred, especially as Westerners. This is, a, this is really a Western thing, self-hatred. But we bring it and we berate ourselves. We put ourselves down. We don't measure up to our standards. And, and it's really unskillful and not useful at all. And really, in fact, the, the, my first book, A Fool's Guide to Actual Happiness, the original title, which you might have to bleep me out, but the original title was called Be Your Shitty Self. And it really poked fun at the self-hatred and said, you are enough and what you have is enough for peace, for ease, for joy. So yeah, I'd say that that would be one of my chapters that I love going back to. <laughs> I love it. It's such an important point, and I, I really enjoyed that chapter as well. Uh, we really just scratched the surface. Time flew by, so I highly encourage everyone to pick up the book. It's Your Life is Meditation. If you're looking for a practical guide, whether beginner experience, I think you'll find a, a lot of use in this book. I, I really enjoyed it. This has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about you? So they can go to my website, authormarkvanburen.com. I was originally calling it mindful living training, but now I've been kind of gearing it towards mental fitness training, mainly because I'm doing a lot of work at a gym that I'm working at. So trying to get the gym people into meditation, but you can learn, you know, about what I'm doing, events I'm doing. I'm constantly doing free events on Insight Timer, the app. Yeah, I have, you know, all the social media. If you just type in author Mark Van Buren, you'll find me. That's my Facebook. That's my Instagram. And I'm always trying to post some inspirational stuff, reminders to practice. And I've really made my life practice about supporting people's practice. So, you know, if you want to reach out to me, I mean, that's my email too, author Mark Van Buren at gmail.com. So reach out to me. And if I can support you in your practice in any way, please let me know because that's what brings me the most joy in my life. That's awesome. I really appreciate it. And we're going to link all of that in the show notes. Mark Van Buren, I thank you for your time. This has really been a pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, Subscribe to our free email meditations. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life. Write to your inbox. Go to perennialleader.com. Lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. And until next time, be wise and be well.